0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Li Chen Sin, together with Jonathan Fulton, co-editor of External Powers and the Gulf Monarchies, a timely analysis of the Gulf's relations with emerging powers in an increasingly multipolar world. Li Chen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, James.
0: It's a pleasure. Perhaps we can kick off with you giving a little bit of an intellectual biography of yourself and how you came to edit this book. Sure.
1: Well, I started off my academic life as someone who was interested in Russia. So when I was in the university in Singapore, I did European studies because I was fascinated with um, Gorbachev. And so from there, that moved into a fascination with you, know, Russian transformation and the Russian reforms, and that took me to the University in London, LSE, where I did um, my thesis again on Russia. And thereafter, I went to Oxford, and I had the pleasure, extreme pleasure, of working under Dr. Archie Brown, although Russian oil industry wasn't his. He was, you know, was more uh, keen to work on Gorbachev, but nevertheless, he very kindly took me on and I did my thesis about the privatization of the Russian oil industry at a time when it was going through gut-wrenching changes. And I was primarily interested in it because of what it said about state business relations in Russia about uh, state capture, about the role of business. And so um, when I came to Zayed University, I, I found that at that time, about 2006, um, Russia didn't have a really great global presence at that time. And so um, being in an oil-rich country like the UAE, I decided to retool a little bit Uh, to work on the UAE's energy sector, uh, obviously the hydrocarbon industry. But as well, they were going through a time when they were considering uh, the use of nuclear energy. And so I thought that this was quite a perfect match with my oil background in Russia. And therefore, I worked uh, on the uh, UAE's energy industry as well. And by the time a few years later, um, Russia had um, strengthened itself and it was making a bit more impact in the world. So it was actually a perfect marriage of my uh, Russian studies background with my practical uh, secondary research interests in the UAE's energy sector uh, and the UAE's foreign policy. Uh, that got me starting to think um, about possibility of work in this area to straddle the two fields. Now, I was very fortunate to have my colleague, uh, Jonathan Fulton, uh, working with me in Diet University as well. And he comes from a different angle. Um, he had just finished his Gulf China uh, thesis, his PhD work. And so we kind of saw a complementarity there because there was a lot of work uh, a few years ago being done on how the Gulf was looking out outwards to reach out to external powers to try to manage its relations within the Gulf itself with its neighbours. But there was not a lot of work being done about why external powers, external to the region, like for example, South Korea, India, China, Russia, etc., why were they interested in the Gulf? So looking from an outside-in rather than an inside-out perspective. And so this is where we got together um, and decided to do a book on outside looking-in. Um, that We contacted a few people that we knew, and voila, um, the result was the book.
0: Indeed, and it's a crucial part of the story today. Perhaps we can start off with exactly that, you know, basically the Gulf States' international relations have expanded significantly as a result of the more assertive policies in the wake of the 2011 Arab popular revolts. That's evidently evident not only in terms of relations with China and Russia, but also other countries. Perhaps you can give us an initial broad overview.
1: Uh, a overview of um, Gulf relations with external powers, or with external powers with the Gulf. Both. Okay, sure. Um, I uh, for the for Gulf external relations, um, as you know, part of the reason um, why they've been looking for more uh, external stakeholders. Uh, one of the reasons would be that um, the U.S. potential withdrawal has left them a bit skittish about whether the traditional uh, security anchor for the Gulf region will still be as committed to them. Uh, if we recall, uh, under Obama, uh, he did, according to the Gulf perspective, the U.S. did not stand by Hosni Mubarak during the Arab Spring. And uh, that caused them to pause for a bit and think you know, if the same thing could happen to them. So they've been looking to diversify their security relations in the event that the U.S. does withdraw or even does scale down its security presence. Um, I guess the second reason why the Gulf would be looking for external partners um, would be a practical one as well, because um, all of them are pivoting to Asia for a very rational reason that Asia is where growth is. If Europe is where the growth was, um, Asia is now where the growth is and where the growth will be. So it's only a matter of practicality for them to pivot to Asia. For example, um, the biggest part uh, trading partners that China has uh, is in the Gulf would be Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So it kind of makes sense for them to pivot to Asia. Um, The UAE, for example, sends all of its gas to Japan uh, and has done so for quite a while. So this pivot to Asia makes economic sense. Um, I would say that the third reason why the Gulf is looking for external stakeholders would be the fact that, um, you know, they have certain domestic constituencies to to keep happy. Uh, for instance, um, uh, as we are well aware, there is a rift between uh, the Gulf states. Uh, on the one hand, the uh, UAE and Saudis against Qatar. And so uh, in the event that gas becomes the new king in the future in the energy markets uh, because of climate considerations, for example, um they would not like Qatar to be the prominent uh, to, to take advantage of its gas wealth uh, to be to play a larger role in the region. Therefore, um, they would try they would like to try to get more external stakeholders into the Gulf, uh, to try to get them, as we like to say, addicted to oil. Uh, which UAE and Saudi has, but Qatar doesn't have as much. Uh, and so in this way, they're trying to also use external stakeholders to play um, a regional game. Uh, so I would say that uh, finally, they would also like to engage the stake external stakeholders because the external stakeholders themselves have expressed an interest to, to go out to the Gulf, so to speak. For example, um, China, obviously, with its belt and rope project, um, has an interest in uh, um, interacting more with the Gulf. Russia, with its uh, newly modernized army and with its uh, increasing capabilities, also would like to go out and make itself more of a global power. And the same can be said for uh, South Korea. Uh, which has a little bit more uh, global ambitions, so the the external stakeholders are also receptive um, to overtures from the Gulf. So that would be my perspective, um, or Jonathan's and my perspective of um, why the Gulf is interested in engaging uh, with the other external
0: stakeholders. All of this uh, leads me to one, what I think is one key aspect of all of this, and you. Uh, potentially touched on it. And that is that the expansion of international relations is not only due to the Gulf States' greater assertiveness, but also changes in the oil market. And what that has meant or is meaning for OPEC, the emergence of the United States as a major oil producer and exporter, greater demand in Asia, and the fact that OPEC uh, agreements to be effective need to be the backing of non-OPEC producers. Like Russia, uh, they can no longer do it on their own
1: Yes, definitely. Um, so it's not just about you know international relations, as you pointed out. Um, I think international political economy is crucial as well uh, in explaining uh, the new motivations from both sides. so as you pointed out um, with uh, the UAE with uh, Saudi Arabia, they can no longer uh, control or have an influence on oil markets on their own. And that is why we have this new concept, if you like, called OPEC plus, which is, you know, the uh, OPEC plus Russia. Um, but it's not the first time, I have to say, it's not the first time that uh, OPEC has tried to uh, come to some sort of an agreement with Russia to try to stabilize or influence uh, global oil markets. Uh, They have tried several times in the past to come to some kind of a cooperative uh, arrangement. Um, But in the past, it has always failed. It failed because um, mostly Russia did not hold up its end of the bargain. But this time around, uh, Russia has seen fit to actually cooperate with OPEC. And I think this is largely because it's also being hammered um, by uh, US sanctions. So um, definitely the international political economy um, explains quite a lot of this um, uh, interaction between the Gulf and external powers. But I would also like to say um, two other points about the international political economy um, having an effect on relations. And that comes, first of all, um, from the Gulf states itself. They are very keen these days to diversify their economy away from oil, away from gas. Yes, I admit we have heard this before in the 1980s. We heard this. We heard this in the 1990s as well. But I think that this time they are really serious about diversifying the economy away from a hydrocarbon-based economy for several reasons. Uh, For one, uh, oil fuels don't last forever. And uh, for some of these countries, they are down to about 30 to 50 years left of oil production at the moment. Uh, So they have to make hay while the sun shines. Um, and for example, they also have got increasingly. They also find it increasingly difficult to extract uh, the oil that is left in the reservoirs, because the oil is you know deeper down and it's becoming uh, more difficult to extract. Uh, you need more well maintenance uh, procedures, etc. You need advanced. Oil recovery methods by injecting gas or carbon dioxide into the fields to keep the pressure up, etc. So they they see that they need a lot of outside uh, expertise uh, to tackle these kinds of challenges. It is no longer the easy oil extraction of the past. So that's why they also need to engage these um, external stakeholders. Um, so so there are these kinds of considerations uh, that's going on um, that, as you say, you know, uh, explains part of why uh, the, the two sides are coming together.
0: I would assume that there's also one other more, more recent consideration, and that's the move in the U.S. Congress, the NOPEC move. In other words, the move to, uh, to them, OPEC, as a cartel. And how much does that impact all of this? Uh,
1: well, of course, uh, uh, Trump, uh, as you, I, I like the way that you said that it was no PEC. Uh, Trump would like OPEC uh, to keep on uh, turning on the gas taps so that prices of oil uh, uh, and gas, uh, by extension, are kept low. Uh, So that keeps his constituencies happy and that keeps them uh, voting for him. That is, of course, um, a consideration as well. Um, So uh, because uh, even though the U.S. is a big oil producer, uh, what happens to prices and supply in the rest of the world also impacts upon the U.S., even though it's a big uh, oil producer. So uh, that is clearly uh, another consideration. And uh, that is definitely uh, something that's on top uh, of the the minds of the U.S.
0: The forging of closer ties by countries like China, Russia, Japan, Korea, Brazil, or India was also facilitated by the United States defense umbrella in the Gulf. That, for all practical matters, came at no expense to uh, other external powers who were interested in engaging more more deeply with the
1: Gulf states. Yes, that is extremely true. Uh, the U.S. in the past has taken on this burden uh, uh, without expecting uh, any uh, like commitments from its allies to ensure that the sea lanes uh, that they keep the sea lanes free for navigation um, and and they protect the uh, sanctity of uh, the maritime uh, maritime borders and this. Is usually not really recognized by quite a lot of people, uh, but the US does play a huge role in this. Um, I think it's something like they spend around 50 to 70 billion US dollars alone uh, just with their commitments to this region. And that helps to, uh, that, that means that external stakeholders who want to trade with the Gulf do not have to worry about you know, potential threats to maritime trade. And so they're basically, as as Trump would like to say, uh, free riding of the U.S. strength. Now, the U.S. has uh, what we call an amazing command of the global commons. It's not that no one can challenge the U.S. in the global commons, but that the U.S., more than any other power, has a preponderance of power, uh, of dominance in the sea, in the air, uh, on land and that they are able to prevent um, other powers from coming into the region. It's it's true that they cannot stop all challenges, uh, for example, in Afghanistan, etc. But they do have a preponderance uh, preponderance of this power. If you think about it, um, uh, Russia is actually quite happy uh, for the US to continue this role, especially uh, here in the Gulf. Russia has got, you know, no intention and certainly no uh, capability at the moment to replace the US. And indeed, it's the US security umbrella here uh, that Russia benefits from in terms of uh, security of trade and security of investments uh, with the Gulf states. Uh, Similarly, with China, yes, even though it has, uh, I think it's two aircraft carriers now, but again, um, power projection. Is pretty limited, um, perhaps beyond the South China Sea. So, um, none, or even if you look at India, um, yes, it is thought of as a possible uh, rising external power who could play a security role in the Gulf, um, and it does have a you know ambitions to play this role. Um, but equally, there are domestic constituents, constituencies in India who would like India to concentrate more on its uh, its resources on much-needed uh, reforms within India itself. So wherever you look, it seems like um, the U.S., well, everybody would like the U.S. to stay, including, of course, the Gulf states. Um But still, they have to prepare for the worst case scenario in case the U.S. withdraws. But frankly, um, personally, I I do not see the U.S. just, um, you know, withdrawing from the region completely. Uh, It's got too much of a stake here in terms of trade, investment, energy. It's allies have too much of a stake here, um, it needs to ensure, you know, its prosperity is not affected, that the, the prosperity of its allies is not affected. So I I don't see a complete uh, US withdrawal. Um, although, of course, I can appreciate that they would like their allies to help somewhat in, in burden sharing, you know, showing up a little bit more often when they are anti-piracy operations, etc. The
0: book essentially argues that the Gulf's relations with all of these countries are primarily economic or military in terms of weapon sales and secondary support for the U.S., like in the case of the British and French military bases in the region. The one external power you haven't mentioned is Turkey, which, uh, granted, is perceived by many as a Middle Eastern power, but which for the longest period of time and still in many ways sees itself as a European power. So the question is whether, what what category you would put Turkey in, and given Turkey's presence in alliance with Qatar, whether it's an exception to the rule.
1: Yes, uh, it's true that, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the bulk of relations are about oil and gas and also somewhat about weapon sales. Now, uh, while that is true, uh, that is for the the current the present moment, uh, and that's because of you know the the fact that in the Gulf states they have not undertaken till now uh, a lot of economic diversification strategies. So there is quite limited trade complement complementarity between the Gulf and the rest, uh, except for exchange of um, uh, energy and and weapons. But um, I I would suggest. That if the Gulf states continue along their path of economic diversification, particularly into non-energy sectors, for example, to non-hydrocarbon sectors, for example, nuclear energy, uh, space, uh, renewable energy, uh, uh, chemicals, uh, petrochemicals, etc., that there will be lots and lots of opportunities opening up, and indeed, many have opened up as well. Uh, from brazil uh, the the gulf states are importing uh, food for instance so um as they uh, diversify i think more of such opportunities will open up um, as to your second point about uh turkey as the other external power yes um it is external to the gulf region per se which is why we have uh, included it uh, in the book and Turkey's uh, position again is an interesting one because of its uh, relations with Qatar and um, its impact upon the uh, Gulf uh, feud that we talked about earlier. So um, this would be an interesting case of seeing you know whether uh, the Gulf states would be able to, shall I say, entice Turkey, uh, to move away from its uh, relations with Qatar. Now, now, why I say that that could be interesting to watch is because um, the Gulf states have you know have previously tried to do this. For example, with Russia. In the past, they have tried to entice Russia away from its support of Bashar al-Assad in Syria by offering Russia, you know, offering to buy weapons from Russia, offering to make some investments in Russia. Um, these enticements and inducements were not successful um, for the most part. But in the case of Turkey, um, who knows, Uh, this could be uh, successful. So it's an example of the Gulf states trying to use uh, Turkey, trying to entice Turkey to manage uh, inter-Gulf rivalries. So this is definitely something that would be uh, really interesting to watch.
0: The uh, ever greater uh, engagement by external powers in the region means also that they have mushrooming interests, like in the case of China, that has sparked the need to be seen to be protecting uh, their own nationals as well as their assets. The question is, uh, how long are countries like China or Russia want, going to be willing to, or to rely on the United States? that in many ways uh, is perceived under the Trump administration to have become far more unreliable and how far, how long or to what extent is that something that's also going to be domestically acceptable. We've seen in China uh, various instances where uh, the fact that the Chinese were not prepared uh, in the a, in a case of an emergency. That that is part domestic dissent. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, um, that's a really good question. On you know to what extent uh, they are going to keep uh, trying, uh, you know, to dampen down on the security role, given their increased uh, economic interests. Uh, we should note that in China, for instance, um, they have had their nationals uh, being attacked, uh, and I believe that it was in in Africa, and Sudan. And so um, with the ever-increasing amount of belt and road projects in and around the Gulf, uh, let's say even in Pakistan, um, the Chinese, uh, in order to protect these investments, may even feel uh, that there is a need to establish some kind of a base maybe here um, in in the Gulf so as to protect uh, their uh, belt rope interests um, um, that skirts uh, the Gulf region and also in Oman. So this is something that is it's definitely worth watching. Um, although at this point in time, for the Chinese, uh, their conception of security is what we call, <clears throat> excuse me, is what we call security through development. So they are trying to Uh, uh, explain away the fact that uh, if we help these countries develop, that will in turn make them um, more cooperative and because there's development, so there are less uh, ethnic or other kinds of hostilities, which will therefore increase security uh, for the Gulf states as well as for China. So that's their concept of security through development and that is their current approach certainly in the long run they have also calculated that they may need to take a more traditional um, approach to to security i.e um, military security and I think that's why they have been um, increasing their military spending uh, in, term- in absolute numbers uh, they have been uh, um, uh, they have been building trying to build their own aircraft carriers. Um, they have uh, also tried to develop their own weapons systems, their own plate, their own fighter jets. Uh, they have actually um, borrowed quite a lot of technology and borrowed in inverted commas uh, through their imports from Russia. They are now able to uh, develop their own uh, uh, weapon systems and their own fighter jets. So I think that they are in the process of preparing for a larger uh, military security role, most likely in the South China Sea, but I don't think you can discount uh, them taking um, a larger military presence here um, because of the um, Belt and Road projects. As for Russia, um, I think that for Russia, the Gulf is not a key region for them. For Russia, um, their main uh, interlocutor has always, uh, their main reference point has always been Europe. So, if there were to be a bigger uh, military presence, uh, it would be uh, the Russians uh, uh, in a European setting, mm-hmm. rather than in the Gulf, which is it is really uh, not a key area for them. Uh, even though they seem to be very active here, but trade-wise and investment-wise. And in terms of a reference point of development, Russia has always seen itself as European at best, uh, Eurasian in a pinch, uh, but definitely the Gulf has not, you know, been the main focus or their main um, their main area of uh, their main target area.
0: Uh, despite the rebalancing, the global rebalancing of power that we're witnessing talk of a new world order and the book's reference to omni-balancing, in which all state decides which external power can protect the regime's interests best. Accepted wisdom is that no one state will be able to replace the U.S. as the region's protector in the, in the near future, at least. Um, so what does that mean if at some point, certainly a country like China feels that it needs to be more assertive in the in, its, uh, in the protection of its interests? Well,
1: I think these days we, we are getting in, in the Middle East to be in a situation of what uh, we called in the book, um, liquid alliances. Uh, alliances are more fragile, are more liquid, uh, they tend to change shape and form, and alliances are no longer on a whole basket of interests as in the past. But alliances are formed more on a specific issue-driven um, alliance. Let, Let's—I'll give you an example. Um, if we take uh, the Gulf, uh, Gulf's relations with Russia, um, the Gulf were very happy to approach Russia over cooperation in the oil markets. Uh, despite, but this did not mean that the Gulf was happy with Russia's position in Syria. Um, as another example uh, the Gulf uh, are happy to unofficially engage much more with Israel uh, in order to balance off Iran, but that doesn't mean that the Gulf are happy with you know Israel's decisions over settlements or over you know the capital and so um uh, it is very, very single issue driven in some case, and in quite a lot of cases these days. And that is what makes alliances uh, very, um, very liquid and, and very changeable. So um, I, I think if China were to say, um, would like to uh, have an increased security presence, um, I think it depended on, it would depend on what issue, over what issue specifically. Uh, Would it be over, you know, say protection of the nationals or would it be on a more uh, terrorist or would it be on a a terrorism angle? If it was on the terrorism angle, um, I'm pretty sure that um, a few countries there would not be, would not object to a kind of a multilateral cooperation over terrorism since it affects, you know, all of them. But if it was to come to a single issue driven thing, like, say, protection of Chinese nationals, then I suppose, you know, it, it will probably be a bit more, uh, you know, specific, a bit more dicey. But I don't see the U.S. Uh, objecting to um, the Chinese taking a more uh, aggressive position on that.
0: Uh, the book uh, argues basically that the Gulf states cannot see their national security interests independent of other states in the region, particularly the Gulf states. And while that probably was for the longest period true with the uh, Gulf states having uh, similar security interests, I wonder whether that's still valid in the wake of the uh, Gulf crisis and the, uh, the boycott of Qatar given one, that Qatar is, I, uh, is, is separated from all of this now, but also that there are concerns in Oman and Kuwait with regard to common security interests.
1: Yes, that is indeed very true. That, uh, and, and that goes to Trump's point about how he would like to have a, you know, a kind of a, a Gulf NATO, so to speak. Um, but that is really a non-starter. Um, in in these days, um, because the GCC is basically split, as you mentioned, uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE on one side, Qatar on the other side, and uh, Kuwait uh, in the middle, uh, and of course Bahrain with the um, Saudis and the Emiratis. So in, in the times now of a split GCC, Uh, clearly a Gulf-NATO concept uh, cannot work. So this begs the issue of whether any of the external powers will then want to take the opportunity to split uh, the GCC apart further uh, since uh, the GCC has traditionally been seen as an American ally and so worm their way into the region. Now, uh, it, it's interesting, say, to, to look at the, the Russian angle because uh, Russian foreign policy traditionally has been, let's be friends with all sides. We will dance at everyone else's wedding, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of concept. I'm friends with both Fatah and, and Hamas. so But Russia has not actually used the opportunity of the, the Gulf split to actually drive a wedge in between the, the GCC states, uh, Russia many times has come out saying that, you know, this is an internal Gulf matter. Uh, we are really uh, no, not interested to, to to muddy the waters. Um, we, we would just like everything to be solved uh, through negotiations, you know, you know, no military action, etc. cetera. So um, they have been quite keen to stay out on that. And at the same time, the Gulf states themselves have, also, uh, are very aware that external powers could come into the region this way. And so, for example, um, they've been quite happy to say this is an internal Gulf issue. You know, it should be solved um, by by ourselves. Uh, even in the case of Syria, uh, the, the, the Emiratis have recently come out to say that, uh, you know, this should be an, you know, in fact, they've tried to say that this should be an Arab issue, i.e. Uh, Iran please do not play a role, Turkey do not play a role. They have tried to keep some of these um, external powers out of um, these issues because I think they realize that this could be, you know, uh, kind of like a way in uh, for some of these external powers.
0: Uh, The book argues further that the expansion of south South trade and investment gives the Gulf states greater opportunity to hedge their bets. Could you elaborate on that a bit?
1: Sure, I'll be glad to. Uh, South-South trade is quite a new thing because uh, in the past, or let's say in the 20th century, uh, quite a lot of trade uh, was was North-South, not just trade, but investments, uh, was North-South uh, direction. Uh, recently, of course, uh, there has been South-North uh, investments, for example, you know, in the, in the football clubs in, in Europe, uh, some of them have been purchased by, you uh, know, Qatar, have been purchased by um, Abu Dhabi or Dubai. Uh, so there has been some south-north investment. But what is quite interesting today is the south-south trade and investment. So, for example, um, the UAE uh, investing in Africa. Um, etc. These kinds of South-South trades and investments, uh, China in Africa, uh, China in the Gulf, etc. However, I think we should be careful in saying that this is going to be the trend. Um, I think the book makes it quite clear that this is part of a rebalancing uh, in the sense that not everything is going to be uh, in a north-south or a south-north direction. Because even today, uh, there, there is a, the north-south angle is still very, very significant and prominent. And perhaps I could give you an example of, let's say, the, in, in the UAE, uh, there is an onshore oil concession, an onshore company called ADCO, which is Abu Dhabi uh, company for onshore oil operations. And in the past, It was owned 60% by Abu Dhabi's uh, ADNOC and 40% by foreign stakeholders. In the past, um, for foreign stakeholders, there were a lot of what we would consider developed country stakeholders. Um, There was uh, 10% for Total of France, 10% for BP of the UK, And, uh, sorry, 10% for BP, 10% for Shell, Um, France would have 10% as well, Exxon and Mobil, another 5% each. So basically, a lot of the 40% of the foreign stakeholders would be Western companies. That was the old structure. Today, um, they have renegotiated uh, Adco's um, partnership, and the character of that 40% has changed quite a bit. Because today, only uh, twenty percent of it is from uh, Western uh, Western countries of France and the UK. So that's only twenty percent going to the developed countries, and the other twenty percent is a really interesting mix of um, Chinese oil companies, um, Japanese, and South Korean. So yes, while there has been some move, you know, of uh, South South trade and investment, I think it's just a rebalancing because. Um, the Gulf states still need the expertise um, and the technology of uh, developed countries who have got much more experience, for example, with uh, developing tight oil plays, tight gas plays, uh, which is something that they will need if they want to fund their economic diversification. Uh, It's a great idea that they get in the uh, Asian stakeholders because um, that would give them security of demand. So I think while the South-South trade and investment is an interesting angle, uh, we cannot say that, you know, that's the end of the, um, you know, the the North-South kind of uh, interaction.
0: Uh, Another point I'd appreciate if you could elaborate on, and that is uh, that in the book, or the book argues that the economic and social reforms that you have described earlier are a way to solidify Uh, rentierism and uh, survivors and and they are a a strategy for regime survival.
1: Yes, um, and uh, yes, thank you for the opportunity to explain more about this. So um, the old, what we call the the network of old rentiers, were the rentiers that were based on the hydrocarbon industry, so the oil and gas. in order, in order to uh, tap into the uh, opportunities offered by the new global economy, uh, the Gulf states have also expanded into renewable energy, uh, into nuclear energy, uh, into um, education, into space. And I think all this is uh, really important because on the one hand, yes, it gives more opportunities, a more balanced development for the uh, for the UAE for for Saudi Arabia it gives more opportunities for external stakeholders to take part in this transformation but equally important it it actually adds to the support system of the uh, Gulf states because then now you can have a bigger pool Uh, from which the rentiers can draw from, no longer just oil and gas rents, but also rents from nuclear, rents from space, uh, rents from renewable energy. And so this is a way, I think, uh, in which to expand the legitimacy among citizens. Um, And don't forget that oil and gas, it is still very, very important, but we need they always need to keep an eye out for the latest trends, so that they can ride um, on the revenues that these trends provide, uh, get their citizens engaged in this, and therefore be a bulwark of extra support uh, for these kinds of reforms.
0: The Gulf states are increasingly moving towards alternative energies, and that obviously creates significant business opportunities. That. The book argues that, on the other hand, it will mean that Gulf states will have to go to greater length to attract foreign investments. Why is that?
1: Well, I think um, partly because, all, on the one hand, all the Gulf states, uh, for better or for worse, are kind of uh, using the same economic diversification strategy. It's not just one Gulf state that's doing that, but everyone else has jumped into the picture Their their economic diversification plans are basically um, repetitions of of each other. Um, So they will have to work very, very hard to make sure that the foreign investment comes to, say, uh, Kuwait, rather than, say, Saudi Arabia, for example, because the foreign investor has a field of all these countries to choose from. So in that sense, uh, each of the Gulf states has to work harder to differentiate itself uh, and to attract the foreign investment. So that's number one. Uh, number two, the states also have to work harder to, attr- uh, to attract foreign investment uh, because also uh, in terms of uh, there, there is only you know a, a limited number of players in renewable. Uh, for example, in nuclear, there are only a limited number of players in who can actually build and construct and operate and manage a nuclear plant. And so, if uh, they let's say Saudi Arabia and the UAE want to get into this, um, they are going to have to, uh, you know, find a way to attract these very, very few uh, energy uh, nuclear reactor uh, c- uh, construction companies. Uh, to be able to come into the country and to construct something like you know 16 nuclear plants in uh, Saudi Arabia alone um how how is one single contractor going to be able to to construct 16 uh uh even if, if it's a staggered uh, time scale uh, there's cost, cost considerations um, there's resource considerations in terms of labor uh, there are considerations in terms of whether it's sustainable uh, uh, in terms of the human resources available in the Gulf to sustain the knowledge that you need to uh, run and operate these nuclear systems safety systems regulatory systems etc so For a lot of these reasons, um, you know, they are going to have to compete actually with each other um, to be able to um, attract the needed foreign investment. And on the third point, um, because all these investments in alternative energy, whether it's renewable or nuclear, require a whole lot of money, um, a lot of subsidies, a lot of new infrastructure, a lot of human resource training. Uh, that just means that they are going to have to keep uh, selling or keep exporting their hydrocarbon resources in order to fund alternative energy development, and, and and that's really a little bit of an irony that they are going to have to keep developing their oil fields and their gas fields in order to move away from from that uh, to go into alternative energy. So again, they're going to have to keep trying to attract investments in oil and gas which it's not, you know, now with all the shale oil plays in the US, um, investors are looking to play the shale oil plays there, as well as looking into LNG gas plants in say Qatar uh, or in Australia. So investors really have got quite a lot of opportunities uh, to play with in terms of oil and gas. And so that's why the the, uh, Gulf states with all this new competition, are also going to have to work much harder to attract the needed oil and gas to uh, to fund their uh, alternative energy investments.
0: We've talked a lot about the opportunities that arise from uh, the Gulf states need to uh, diversify, streamline their economies. Uh, That involves more often than not a unilateral rewriting of the social contract, which brings with it, of course, social and political risks. And to what degree is that going to be a concern for external powers?
1: Um, external powers, I think, when when they look at the Gulf states, um, I, I will comment on the uh, Saudis and, and the Emiratis, which I'm more familiar with. I think when they look at, say, the UAE, for example, I I would say that they they probably aren't as concerned as they are about the uh, social impact of uh, these kinds of transformation. Um, I think they see here in the UAE as it's a more uh, stable. There is more uh, consensus here about what needs to be done, about how it's you know uh, how it should be done. Um, because I guess the population here is smaller um, and it's a little bit uh, easier to control uh, the government has been very careful and for example um it's got a direct democracy system what we like to call the marginalist system of direct democracy where it you know meets very frequently with its constituencies to to explain things to them to hear about their concerns so in, in a smaller state it is a little bit easier to kind of um, make these gestures to show that you know they are they are listening um they Yes, they have uh, done away with some of the subsidies, but as well, you know, they have kept quite a lot of them. Some of the subsidies uh, are taken away more from the expatriate workers than from the locals. So there is still quite a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, uh, co-opting the local population into their vision. So I think if the external state powers, uh, stakeholders look at uh, the UAE, I think they would be a bit more comfortable with how uh, the social contract uh, is you know going to be reneg- renegotiated. On the other hand, I guess if they look at Saudi Arabia, um, they they were probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable uh, because of all the um, things that have happened recently. but I think it's quite important to look at Saudi Arabia in terms of a segmented kind of population where you have the the younger people, you know, the bulk of the Saudi population, a lot of them are under 30. So you have the younger people who are really, really supportive of some of these uh, more uh, modernizing uh, elements of the reforms. Uh, Whether it's uh, uh, concerts or whether it's um, movie theaters, etc., they have been very supportive of of these kinds of moves. And the other segment of the population are the more uh, conservative and traditional elements, which you know are in. I I wouldn't say they are a very small group, but certainly they are not as big a a constituency as the under thirty. So um, I would think that if they look at this picture, they would they would see and hope, I guess, that um, the future would be with the younger under thirty people, and that hopefully um, you know they they manage to uh, ne- renegotiate the social bargain, and they seem to uh, have you know accepted uh, the pace of the, the the reforms in Saudi Arabia. But what is really worrying or what is going to be a big concern is whether these reforms, apart from the social ones, whether they are able to generate the main thing, which is jobs, because a lot of these young people are not employed as well. And so whether these uh, social reforms, economic reforms, whether it's uh, that you're able to bring in foreign investments, that bring jobs, um, whether they are able to create new industries that young Saudis can work in, um, this is the dangerous part uh, of the, the whole social bargain. So socially it seems fine, but uh, for the under 30s, but economically that's still um, a big question mark um, over whether you know the foreign investors um, feel that this is going to be a problem or not.
0: You spoke earlier of, uh, for example, Russia not really having an interest in taking on a larger security role in the Gulf, and that's probably true for many, not all, but many of the external powers currently engaged in the region. The problem, of course, with all of these analyses uh, are the black swans. One of those black swans was the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which has led to Certainly, a strain in relations between Saudi Arabia and the u uh, s Congress, and we still don't know what that the fallout of mounting anger in the u s consulate the u s uh, Congress is going to do to u s Saudi relations. Could the fallout of a crisis like that change perceptions of countries like Russia in terms of the security architecture?
1: I think that because the Gulf, just because it is not a key focus of Russian uh, foreign policy, that this kind of fallout, whether they would take advantage of, you know, worsening in U.S.-Saudi relations to worm their way into the region, um, I mean, yes, of course, they could do it, but they haven't done it in the case of, say, um, the Gulf Gulf rift between the Saudis Emiratis and, and Qatar. So I I don't see Russia really taking advantage of um, any problems with the Saudis and Americans to play a larger security role. I would grant you that Russia would uh, use it as an opportunity, for example, to to sell more weapons. And the Gulf states would probably um, buy more weapons from the Russians, not because they actually need or want the russian weapons per se but you know it's more of a signaling function uh, to the american senate for example that they have other options but realistically speaking even this whatever weapons they buy from uh, the russians are just a drop in the ocean um, uh, the gulf states have traditionally bought american weapon systems and they've bought like you know billions and billions of um, American weapon system. They the UAE res- recently offered to buy about a billion dollars worth of uh, Russian weapons, and that's just a drop in the bucket for you know the overall spending on American systems. Besides, um, American and Russian defense systems don't have; um, they are not interoperable. So you cannot just buy American systems and then You know, buy some Russian planes and then hope that the Russian planes can speak to the American systems. That that doesn't work. Um, There's no interoperability. So, for the most part, Gulf systems, defense systems are based entirely, or, you know, for the most part, on uh, American weapon systems. So, if they, you know, do try to buy weapon systems, which they do, which they will, um, they have wanted to buy S 400s, for example. it could work in certain isolated theatres, let's say, I don't know, maybe in Syria if they wish. Uh, it could work in isolated theatres, but if you're talking about the whole um, defence system throughout the entire country, it is not easy to integrate um, the different um, software systems um, because of proprietary rights. So um, that's why you know, I feel that uh, the, Russia could well take advantage of this rift Uh, to get a bigger foot into the door in terms of security uh, commitments. Um, But I I just don't think that the Gulf is is important enough for Russia at this point in time.
0: Lee Chen, I have many more questions, but we've already taken up a lot of your time. Perhaps we can uh, conclude with you telling us a little bit about what your future plans are. Where do you go from here in terms of your research?
1: Well, that's a a really good question and uh, one that Jonathan and I have talked about. And where we see there is a space for future research coming from the book is that while we've talked a lot in the book about external powers and their role in the Gulf, we haven't actually talked about how external powers compete with each other in the Gulf. For example, in terms of the external powers competing on weapon sales in the Gulf or the various external powers competing on providing cybersecurity services to the Gulf or external powers competing among themselves um, to, let's say, um, provide support for like museums development or cultural development. So we haven't actually looked at the Gulf as a theater of competition among external powers, and this is where we'd actually like to go with you know in terms of a future project um, uh, after the uh, after this book. So so that's our plan. Um, but at the moment, uh, Jonathan is really busy with his projects um, on the Belton Road. Uh, I myself have a project uh, with Robin Mills on uh, alternative energy in MENA. So you know we both have uh, concurrent projects going on, but we hope that maybe in about one or two years' time, uh, we actually can uh, have the opportunity to work together again to um, edit a book on uh, the Gulf as a theater of competition for external powers. And I hope you enjoy it too.
0: Li Chen, thank you very much. In- indeed, I enjoy it very much, and it links into uh, stuff that I am doing at the moment, In any case, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoy it and wish you all the best.
1: James, thank you very much.